If we play our cards right and we really build this business, we're gonna get a lot more people that come and attack us and say things about us and try to tear us down. And that comes with an incredibly disciplined approach to investing, right? Not just chasing Exahash because all of our competitors have put out these crazy Exahash headlines. So as a company today, we have a big balance sheet. We have over around 9,100 Bitcoin. That's over $400 million at today's pricing. I don't know where it's gone to in the last couple hours. The value of these electrons will increase over time. And it's important for us if we want to be a 20 plus billion dollar business that we are one of the most competitive and one of the largest Bitcoin mining companies. Are you in the business of just mining Bitcoin or are you in the business of like maximizing electrons? This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal family or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week I have on Sue and Asher from HUD8. How are you guys doing? Welcome. Thanks for having us. Hey, great to be here. Absolutely. Before we dive into the conversation, can you guys both share a little bit about your your personal backgrounds and what eventually led you to work in the Bitcoin mining industry? Maybe we can start with Sue and then go to Asher. Yeah, so my background is actually, I was in the TradFi space up until about 2016. And I actually left the TradFi space after being insanely disenchanted with some of the prehistoric dinosaur processes that I saw underpinning the Canadian financial services um, system in Canada. Um, and so that's when I started looking and learning and effectively going on a deep dive as to like, there must be some sort of technology that solves for these antiquated systems and silos of information talking to each other, T plus three and all the things that can go wrong with that. Um, so that's how I learned about distributed ledger. That obviously is then how I learned about, you know, went down the Bitcoin blockchain um, ferret funnel. Um, and then I think the tipping point for me was in 2017, I had formally left financial services and was like desperately trying to get into the crypto space and convince the crypto industry in Toronto, which was pretty robust, like Ethereum, like the group that founded Ethereum is actually out of Toronto. I was trying to convince them that I wasn't just sort of another, you know, bandwagoner um, from the TradFi space trying to get into crypto. Um, but the sort of tipping point for me was I ended up doing this jungle survival course in Amazon Guyana. Um, and we had this this group of of tribesmen who live in Amazon Guyana um, following us around because there's so many ways that you know first world Canadian idiots like me can can die in the jungle. Um, and what was really interesting is at the end of the two weeks, um, a lot of them they had no identification, they didn't know their birthdays, but they had cell phones. And actually, the chief had asked to be paid for their services in Bitcoin. And so that for me was my like pff, my my big sort of aha moment in the sense that, you know, here are people who cannot formally participate in the traditional sort of financial services or sort of any, any real um, uh, economic space that now have agency and are able to participate. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was like a big, that was sort of my big tipping point into the crypto space. And then I helped start the wealth trading desk at Coinsquare and then the rest is history. How about you, Asher? Yeah, so my history, I've uh, been in serial entrepreneur my whole life. Uh, parents immigrate to the U.S., kind of that, the whole American dream story. First one to go to college, first one to graduate, and started my first business abroad and, and built. And when we uh, idea is kind of the idea behind U.S. Bitcoin, which is a company that merged into Hot 8 recently. Uh, that was COVID had hit. 
And me and my co-founder, uh, Michael at the time, basically saw three kind of big macro trends. One was my dad's in his, his 70s. He called me. He's like, hey, have you heard of this thing called Bitcoin? I think it's this new digital gold, right? And so it's in this idea of this kind of uh, world that's becoming remote and being uh, kind of te te technology driving and this idea of a digital currency, I, I think, would become more relevant at that time in the adoption of growth. The second was specifically around kind of the semiconductor chips going at the time from seven to five nanometers, now three and two, you saw this plateau in Moore's law where the machines would last for a longer period of time. You can appreciate for them for a longer period of time. And so from an investment perspective, you could deploy a lot more dollars because you knew that it wasn't going to be recapitalized every single year and you'd have to buy new machines that came out there were two, three, four X more efficient. Uh, the analogy I always like to use there is when the iPhone first came out, every year when the new one came out, like, wow, this one is so much better, so different. And now every new one that comes out, you're like, maybe I think the camera is better. Um, and so similarly, the, the chips uh, operated in a similar way in Bitcoin miners. They're all from TSMC, which is kind of the foundry that produces the underlying wafers. And so that was the second. And the third was the energy transition, right? You have a lot of renewables being built in places like West Texas, where you have wind and solar generation being produced. You don't have really much load at the sources of generation. So you have a lot of congestion um, issues and you have a lot of kind of curtailment, negative pricing dynamics. And Bitcoin mining was such an interesting load where you can be an agile load, just like intermittent generation. You can be an intermittent load. You can kind of counteract that balance of supply and demand uh, within kind of this huge uh, power generations and help with the evolution of renewables. So those are the three reasons of kind of why now? And then the why us was in order to really execute and be great in the space, you have to be the lowest cost operator and you have to execute extremely efficiently. And we felt like we would be able to compete at scale doing those two things. And again, started the business in December of 2020 and I think scaled up to one of the large softwares of Bitcoin miners in North America. Yeah, very impressive. I do kind of want to dive into the merger between HUD-8 and US Bitcoin Corp. Can you guys tell us like what were the main drivers behind this deal? I'll let Asher start with that and then I'll piggyback on, on it. Sure. So, so from our side, uh, we had raised a little over a hundred million dollars in equity capital and we grew the business from basically zero megawatts, uh, to 730 megawatts with kind of the Celsius ionic deal pending, bringing us to over a gigawatt of machines, uh, of, of megawatts under management and almost forage a thousand machines under management. Right. And so about 10% of kind of the global network for Bitcoin mining. And so. I think we were able to do that with very little capital deployed and how thoughtfully we deployed the capital. And it's across three business divisions. The first is self-lighting. So we build facilities, we have machines, we run machines, or we host machines, and it's really exposure to self-lighting and Bitcoin mining and hash price. The second is hosting. So we build infrastructure and we're like a landlord and we can host other people's miners. And either we take a fixed fee or we take a profit share so we can decide how much risk profile we want. We don't have to deploy a lot of money up front in terms of CapEx. And then the third was the managed services business where we don't have to deploy any money in terms of CapEx. We can take all the technology, all the IP, all the software that we've developed, and we can basically go and um, scale scale, uh, scale without deploying capital, right? And that was matters because we believe in this industry, scale allows you to have better purchasing power, drive down costs across your build outs, your operations and such. And so. We got to a point where we were 730 megawatts. We had met the folks at HUD-8 and we felt like there was a really, really interesting synergy because HUD-8 had done an amazing job with their auto strategy. 
and I built a big Bitcoin balance sheet. Um, and in addition, had started kind of the path towards diversification with Bitcoin mining, HBC, and really heading down that route. And I think for for up for up for them, and Sue will chime in here afterwards, is uh, what they were looking for was operational rigor and scale. And so we checked that box for them. Jake, they checked off the balance sheet for us. And together we believed we would have a company that had scale, that was operationally efficient, that had a great balance sheet, and that can go into the having stronger than ever. And that was kind of the thesis that brought those companies together. Yeah. So I think, you know, to Asher's point, what HUD 8 did, we did really well in terms of our HODL strategy. But I think another thing that we really liked um, about the US Bitcoin team outside of just their operational expertise was also the fact that they really looked at and they prioritized capital allocation as a priority relative to just sort of operational expertise. So kind of the the, the idea of um, running a business like an investor versus just sort of an operator. And I think that that's something that's really unique to this industry. Um, and that's another thing, yeah, that we thought this this made a lot of sense to, to do this marriage. For those that don't know, when did this actually occur like officially and then are you guys is this entity now like the largest in terms of network like hash rate compared to all the other public miners yeah so uh we announced the merger end of january beginning of february of last year and it took us about the majority of the year to get it closed and so end of november beginning of december is when the merger officially closed so today when you look at kind of megawatts and hash rate under management i do believe we're, we're one of the, if not the largest. In this frontier moment, Asher mentions that Hut now manages more hash rate than all other public miners in the US. Hut now controls roughly 10% of the global network hash rate. Is this consolidation bad? Doesn't mining need to be decentralized? When Satoshi first began mining, he was the only miner. Mining takes place on an open permissionless network. If miners attempt to censor transactions, other miners can join the network and mine those transactions. With that said, the global trend is the clear decentralization of mining. Originally, mining began completely centralized on one device, Satoshi's. Over the following years, thousands of machines were mining Bitcoin all over the world, but by 2020, it was estimated by Cambridge that up to 90% of all mining activity was in China. China then banned mining, and in 2024, this year, no single country has a majority of the network hash rate. The end game for mining is miners scavenging and decentralizing across the world for extremely low cost and wasted energy. And now back to Asher and Sue. Self-mining is a smaller percentage relative to our peers, but in terms of overall management of machines that we operate, control, run our software on, et cetera, um, I believe we're one of the top largest in North America. I'm curious also, we now have the ETF approval and ETFs have been trading for about a month or so, how has that altered the strategic decisions that you guys are making as a company? Yeah, so if you think about why people invested in Bitcoin mining companies historically, they invested to get exposure in Bitcoin, right? You had large institutions, funds that couldn't get exposure in Bitcoin any other way, they couldn't buy Bitcoin and so forth, so they bought Bitcoin mining companies. Um, and so ETFs, I think, take away that need for them to get exposure through Bitcoin mining companies because ETFs are low fees that they'll continue to drive down near zero, right? And so you can get exposure to Bitcoin without buying Bitcoin through ETFs. Now there's another layer of like our industry provides natural leverage. So when we raise money, we buy infrastructure, we buy ASICs, which are machines, right? And so when Bitcoin specifically hash price increases, our yield on the, that infrastructure increases. 
But at the same time, the value of those machines and the value of those infra that infrastructure becomes more expensive as well because the yield is higher. Similar to real estate. If you're producing more rental income, it's usually because the house is worth more, right? And so there's, there's a tie to yield and the underlying value of the assets. So that creates that natural leverage. I think the reality is if you just want leverage on Bitcoin, like there's going to be an option market that builds upon ETFs. And so you're going to be able to have calls and put options, et cetera. So you'll be able to get exposure to leverage as well on top of Bitcoin. And so our belief is people are going to want to invest in mining businesses because there are sound fundamental businesses that drive cash flow and invest in that positive uh, return profiles on the investments that they make, similar to energy companies, oil and gas, gold mining companies. I mean, that, that's really why people want to invest. They want to invest in great businesses. And that element of exposure, I think, um, won't be as pronounced, but they'll still get that leverage in great operating businesses, right? When coal prices run, coal mining companies do really, really well. Yeah, makes sense. I've also seen that HUD-8, and you guys have mentioned this, has started to diversify out of just Bitcoin mining, right? What's been the reason behind this diversification? Yeah, so when we think about kind of our business, like what is our business at its core and at, at its root? The business is we consume electricity, right? Like that's the majority of our OPEX and our costs. And so when we think about what we've gotten really good at is procuring large-scale electrons and being able to monetize those electrons in places where otherwise the power the cost of power is cheap and there's not really that monetization effort. And so when we look at the business kind of in the next five years, the directional bet that we're taking is there's so much stranded power that exists today because of the overdevelopment of wind and solar, and primarily in regions where there's not much consumption. Transmission systems take a long time to build. You have to build easements. You have to go over homes and highways and kind of build long transitions, uh, lines across state lines or across a full state in some situations. And so the directional bet we're taking is as more use cases of load develop. So Bitcoin mining is one, which we believe is the highest and best use case now. Battery power technology is catching up really rapidly. You have data centers that everyone's talking about, which are large consumers of electricity. Latency requirements are coming down. You have technologies that aren't really here yet in terms of commercialization, like green hydrogen or carbon capture. but as time progresses, there will be more use cases like Bitcoin mining that can be located in more remote areas. And so you're going to have natural demand increase, and then you're going to have more transmission being built, connecting generation to load. And so you'll have demand increase as well. So the directional that we're taking is that the value of these electrons will increase over time. And it's important for us if we want to be a 20 plus billion dollar business that we are one of the most competitive and one of the largest Bitcoin mining companies, but that's one pillar of our business. And our business is really about maximizing the value of every electron. And we have a Bitcoin mining division. We have a battery division. We have any other divisions that we believe that are truly competitive. So HPC, for example, Hadid has already uh, gone into that space. We own five traditional HPC data centers. And so we'll continue to look at technologies that will be able to maximize those electrons but that's what's going to allow us to have that asymmetric upside and to take that base layer of energy and be able to build a business that's in the tens of billions of dollars rather than a smaller total addressable market of just Bitcoin mining. Yeah, I think so. Just coming from the legacy HUD 8 perspective. So we first bought um, five traditional data centers in January of 2022. And also part of the thinking behind it was was effectively building a portfolio of infrastructure that had uncorrelated return profiles, right? So not only were you getting a call option 
on um, the price of Bitcoin and, and sort of some of these ancillary businesses around the Bitcoin industry, um, but also it was a call option on the growth of the cloud co-location um, and sort of demand. I think that that industry is growing at about eight eight to 10% annual CAGR over the next five to 10 years. And so really building that robust pro, uh, portfolio of composable compute infrastructure and energy assets, we really do think is going to continue to be our competitive advantage moving into the future. Awesome. For those divisions that are outside of Bitcoin mining, is there one in particular that you're like most bullish on, whether it's battery or HPC or, or something else, or are they all just kind of smaller bets and you're going to see how it goes over time? No, so look, the bet that we have taken is HPC, right? We have five data centers, as Sue just mentioned. Everything else that I mentioned, we're exploring and we're looking at and we'll continue to explore new technologies that emerge as well. I think the underlying kind of framework of thinking is if we're going to enter a space, how do we actually do so in a meaningful way? And how do the economics result in a meaningful impact, which means we have to create a competitive moat. So any new technology we look at is, can we build a competitive moat can we grow and can we scale and can this be a meaningful part of our business in the future? And if it checks a lot of those boxes, then we'll look at exploring those verticals. Makes sense. Back to Bitcoin mining. Obviously, 2024, we have the upcoming halving, uh, probably in about 60 days at this point. What are your thoughts and feelings toward the halving? Are you excited or are you more concerned? As a yeah, so... I think there's kind of macro market perspective in our position within that market. So if you look at kind of some of the work that we've done over the last 15 months, we've grown a lot as a business because of some of the bankruptcies that happened. Uh, we were active in the computer bankruptcy. We had a big managed services deal come out of that. We purchased an asset. We obviously just helped Celsius come out of bankruptcy as well. So as a company, we grew a ton during those periods of time. And I think we became pretty good experts in how to operate in distressed environments how to consolidate and grow. And so when you look at the halving, I mean, the reality is I'm not a believer that Bitcoin's going to double overnight, right? And so I think the world is going to get like tough for miners before it gets better. And as a result, we're going to have basically distress scenarios that come up. People are going to need to be consolidated. They're not going to have cash to continue to operate. And so for us as a business, I think, again, to Sue's point, if we're good investors, you don't want to invest when prices are running and you're in kind of dot-com bubble environment and everything is super expensive. You want to invest at the bottom of the market so you can have the upside, yeah. right? And so as a company today, we have a big balance sheet. We have over around 9,100 Bitcoin. And that's over $400 million at today's pricing. I don't know where it's gone to in the last couple of hours, but um, we, we, have a, we have strong balance sheet. And the goal is to maintain that balance sheet going into the app. And we're going to uh, look at opportunities to growth opportunities in the short term, but maintain a lot of the balance sheet going into the having to be able to invest in the right opportunities that we believe are kind of cheaper in, in nature and give us a really big upside. And so for us, we see this as an opportunity. We see this as a buying opportunity to grow the business. So it's safe to say that you guys have a more trying to have a more conservative approach toward the having. And if there is, you know, capitulation from more miners, you guys will be ready to to capitalize on that. That's right. We like to build the business, always planning, preparing for the worst case scenario. And then if we're wrong, we're going to be very, very happy because the best case scenario is going to uh, return much better results than we had even modeled for. But I think, and I think just to piggyback on what Asher is saying, and I obviously would agree with all of it, it's doing all of the above, but also with, the, with an emphasis on shareholder return and shareholder value in mind. So, and what do I mean by that? Things like 
not being solely reliant on dilutive sources of funding in terms of how we grow this business, being thoughtful about debt and how we structure that debt. Um, you know, being thoughtful about if we do take a portion of our stack and reinvest it into the business, if the price and the timing makes sense. I think that those are all things that we, um, when I talk about sort of capital allocation and why that's sort of a primary lens with which we we build this business, um, I think is is a lot is is something that's very very unique and I think going to um, prove to be sort of one of our killer apps um, beyond the having. Yeah. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think HUD8 has around seven exahash of, of self-mining hash rate. I don't know if you guys have seen like Swan, uh, the Bitcoin company recently announced that they have about five exahash. How closely do you guys monitor your competitors and like watch different developments within the ecosystem? Yeah, so obviously we're in tune with that, all of our competitors and kind of scale and growth. And I think this double downs on what Sue says. Our goal as a company is not to chase kind of vanity metrics like large amount of exahash, largest market cap, because at the end of the day, as a company, our only job is to drive return to our shareholders. And we have to figure out the best way to drive that return. I think as an industry, shareholders have been diluted a lot. And even though companies have grown and exahash numbers have grown, shareholders have lost money. And so when we think about the business, scale matters in our sector, right? having scale, having that economies of scale, having that Costco model, it matters. And so we'll continue to grow the business, but we're not going to do so at the expense of shareholder value. We're not going to do so at the expense of shareholders losing money. And so I think that's pretty critical as we look at growth. Um, and that's why we have a diversified business. We have self-mining, which is high CapEx, buying machines, building infrastructure. We have hosting, which is kind of medium to low CapEx, only building infrastructure, no machines but you can still do profit share. So you get the same upside as if you own machines and then you have managed services, which is no CapEx. So for our, for us, the way we think about how that delivers value to shareholders is we can get the same benefits of scale without just having to raise hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and deploy it in, into growth. Because even if we're increasing the amount of exahash we have, but we're increasing the market cap because there's so many more shares outstanding because we have to raise so much money, each shareholder has less, owns less of the company and that that share is worth less than it, it was when the company was smaller. And so it's just being very, very thoughtful that we're growing, we're continuing to remain competitive. We're being creative about how we grow in a cost uh, conscious way. And by doing so, if we become the company that people feel like to your point, they can get exposure through Bitcoin, through the ETFs, they're investing in us to get a great return on their investment. And if they believe that this is the place that they can create a great return on their investment, they're going to invest in us because over, over a long period of time, more money will flow to us. And as a result, we will be the biggest. But I think building a business is about being patient, about being methodical. It is about doing, doing so over a long period of time. I think that's why in our industry, if you look at it, I mean, we had massive companies grow in 2021 because everyone was chasing growth. Everyone's chasing SASH numbers. And then in 2022, you have massive bankruptcies and massive restructurings and so in this frontier moment we're talking about the massive mining bankruptcies and restructurings in 2022 here were the three largest known restructurings one core scientific filed for bankruptcy in december 2022 due to a falling bitcoin price rising energy costs and unpaid debts two compute north went bankrupt in september of 2022 owing up to 500 million dollars to over 200 different creditors three celsius mining filed for bankruptcy in July 2022 with a $1.2 billion deficit to over 100,000 creditors. 
The bankruptcies of these entities demonstrate that bear markets not only transfer mining equipment, but also Bitcoin itself from over-leveraged owners to stronger, more financially stable holders. This process purges weaker participants, setting the stage for the next bull run by moving ASICs and Bitcoins to stronger holders. And now back to Asher and Sue. It's really kind of taking that into mind and saying, you know what? If I'm a shareholder, I'm investing in this co company. I believe in the way that they're thinking about growing the business and they put us first and foremost in mind. I think, you know, um, a book that's been sort of percolating a lot of our conversations right now as we sort of look to the next chapter of HUD-8 um, and what it looks like from a management perspective, what it looks like from a philosophical perspective. Um, Asher put this book called The Outsiders on, on Our Radar, and it's a study of, um, and I'm going to get Asher to talk a little bit about some of the lessons from it as well, but it's basically a study of the top seven CEOs in American business who outperformed the S&P by 20 times and their peer group by seven times over multi-decades. And um, one of, there was a few things that all all seven of these CEOs did, regard, despite being in completely different industries. And it was focus on building the business as a capital allocator and an investor, not just an operator. Decentralized operations. So empowering each management team with an entrepreneurial mindset and then obviously them being in charge of their own budget. Um, and uh, like focusing on things like, and again, I'm not disclosing anything here, but as an example of what some of these other CEOs did that was considered very unconventional at the time was things like stock buybacks. Um, you know, buying your stock buy back when it's low and then selling your stock when you needed to fund the business when it was high. Um, so those those are just some of the philosophical, I think, pillars. I think, yeah, I think adding to that a little bit is, I think the kind of the thesis is, as a good leader, as a good allocator of capital, you have to basically play the best cards with the hands that you're dealt, right? And so some of these executives, they sold parts of their business and divested and bought back shares. Other uh, executives, they basically raised money and expanded the business and grew the business. So it showed you how based on different timing in the market, basically executives have to act in a completely opposite and different way, but they did what was right at that moment in time to drive the best return and the best value for their shareholder. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check out that book. Sounds awesome. Yeah. We'll send you a copy. It's a great, yeah. great book. Yeah, highly recommend. Awesome. Love it. Um, you, you talked about uh, Asher, the 2021 cycle where everyone was just building out infrastructure, buying all these ASICs, deploying all this hash rate. And then we had 2022, which was the, the washout, the bankruptcies. Do you expect that cycle to repeat? Like, will we see another, if Bitcoin goes on another run, will people get out over their skis and over leveraged and then get washed out or yes, I, think, I think the big difference of what you're seeing right now is in 2021 a lot of the capital raised was through equipment financing and debt right because you had near zero interest rates and so that's what caused a lot of kind of the distress which is a lot of companies going bankrupt because they couldn't fulfill their their debt obligations etc i think this time around you're seeing people raise a lot more money through the equity markets instead of the debt markets so you may not see as many bankruptcies, but I think you'll see shareholders not getting the return that they think they would have. Because if you think about it, right, if you own one share that's worth $100 and the company 2Xs in market cap, you're like, hey, I should own $200 a share. The company doubled. But the reality is they might have raised more than 50% more than in terms of cash to go do that. And so you're like, how did I lose $10 and the company doubled? And so I think that's, a, a dynamic that will play out in this next cycle is companies, I believe, will continue to grow because 
every time they go and announce a big headline of this is how many machines we're buying. Like people are not really looking at what is your cost per machine? What is your cost of energy? What is your cost of build out? What is your ROI profile on that investment? They're just like, oh, that sounds great. And I think let me like put it into kind of a bit more uh, layman terms is if you go and buy a rental property for a home, right? When you buy the rental property, you say, okay, how much does this rental property cost? Is it in a good area where I can get a good leasee to come in and basically pay a good rent that gives me a good cap rate? Is it a stable place where they're not gonna come and tear and destroy the house because they don't have to fix it? It's gonna cost a lot of money to fix it. Like that's how you like build any business, right? It's like those questions on I'm deploying money to buy this, what is gonna be my return? And am I gonna do well? And am I gonna be able to do that at scale? I think to use that same analogy for chasing like nameplate hash rate or chasing mark gap, you're basically saying, hey, I bought 50 homes, I bought 100 homes, I bought 500 homes, but like, if the homes are really expensive, if they're really bad neighborhoods, if there's no one who even wants to rent them, I mean, are you gonna return capital on the investment that you make, right? And so I think those are the questions, candidly, that are not being asked. And those are the questions that are going to become an issue down the road as we look at kind of all of this growth is it's growing at the expense of what? And so when we think about it is, don't get me wrong at all, I think growth is really important because as a business, we have to grow to return money to our shareholders but being thoughtful about that growth and doing so in a way where we continue to remain a competitive moat, but we actually drive returns that we can reinvest into the company or um, sh show kind of the shareholders um, in terms of kind of EPS multiples or whatever you're looking at, right? Yeah. Is it is there any concern or, or I guess annoyance when like firms are trying to grow rapidly without, you know, being careful about what they're doing because in a way if you know a bitcoin miner goes out there and builds a ton of infrastructure and deploys all these machines even in a not efficient way difficulty is going to rise and you end up earning less bitcoin how do you how do you think about that yeah definitely so i'll, I'll answer that from kind of two perspectives the first is i've had people come to me like hey do you want to raise money you just became the ceo do you want to raise money etc i was like have you seen our market cap that went down a lot recently like equity is really expensive and and I think one thing that's interesting as well, right, is myself, the chief strategy officer, because we were the founders of US Bitcoin merging into this, we own a lot of stock in the company. A lot of our net worth is tied in the company. And so we're really aligned with shareholders in the sense of like the return on that investment is good for us and it's good for all shareholders. And I think that's like a really deep fundamental kind of driving factor. Um, but yeah, is, is it frustrating when the market rewards just growth without asking kind of questions? I think so, because I think it incentivizes folks to not focus on the right things. And as a result, that hurts shareholders, right? And that, that's how I kind of think about it. And so um, the short answer is like in 2021, we were pretty conservative. Like people were buying machines for 60, 70, $80 a terahash. We never spent above on average, I think $35 a terahash, right? And like, yeah, that hurt us because we didn't grow as fast, but it also helped us a lot when it, all the prices came tumbling down, right? We sold machines in the 80s dollars per terahash because we're like, this is so high, like we'll be a seller in this market, not a buyer. And so I, I think kind of going back into it is um, when I was young, uh, there was kind of this like graph that was drawn as like a freshman year in college, it was this investment um, group that I was in and it was kind of the Y and X axis. And it was basically like, you can be, you can be um, you're, you're kind of spectrum of like uniform and different and right and wrong. So you can be different and you, so you can be, you can be uniform, so same with everyone else, like same with the crowd, and you can be right. And then like, you're not that impressive, right? Because everyone is right and everyone um, is making money when the markets are really good. You could also be the same and you can be wrong. 
and you lose money. It's like, oh, this year was a bad year because the S&P went down, everyone lost money. And then you have kind of, if you're different or if you're contrarian is what they call it, right? So you can either be contrarian and wrong, which people think you're just crazy. It's like, why didn't you listen to everybody? Like you just lost all the money, everyone crushed it. Or you can be contrarian and right. And I think that's that sweet spot where you have unbelievable entrepreneurs, unbelievable businesses that thought differently, that approach the markets differently and over a longer period of time that paid out, right? And I think that's kind of goes back to the Warren Buffett, like invest in companies that have a great intrinsic value, even if the market doesn't value them at that moment in time. And so when we think about building the businesses, how can we build the right business that builds intrinsic value? And over time, the market will kind of catch up in their sophistication and their knowledge and they'll reward us for doing the right things and treating shareholder capital and being good uh, fiduciaries of capital. The Unchained IRA is continuing to break new records. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the show. And that comes with an incredibly disciplined approach to investing, right? Not just chasing exahash because all of our competitors have put out these crazy exahash headlines. It's being incredibly disciplined in terms of how we deploy capital, when we deploy capital, and what what competitive modes we've identified and at what price point we we start to play at them. So, and again, yeah. growth is super important, right? So I don't want anyone to hear me wrong. Like growth, the way we return value to our shareholders is by growing. But if you pay a million dollars for a house versus two million dollars for a house. That makes a pretty big impact if your your rental income every month is the same, right? Totally, hundred percent. Yeah, that's what you said about being contrarian and right. I feel like that embodies Bitcoin, you know, over the last decade for for sure. For sure. Um, another thing that I want to bring up that I'm sure you guys have been aware of and thinking about is the J Capital Research Report, their short report that they put out. I do want to give you guys a chance to tell your side of the story. How have you been thinking about that? Yeah. So look, uh, I told this to the team. I said, if we play our cards right and we really build this business, we're going to get a lot more people that come and attack us and say things about us and try to tear us down. I think when that report came out, the team and the board took it extremely ser- seriously. We looked into everything before we made a release. I know a lot of shareholders said, why aren't you responding quickly enough? Why aren't you addressing it? And I think from our side, we wanted to go through the proper processes, go through every single kind of a point that was raised and to kind of understand where we stood there and be confident because when we responded, we kind of had this response. I don't know if you saw, but it was basically that we believe kind of that allegations are misleading, driving the wrong accusations, the wrong conclusions, et cetera, and really doing so to drive the incentive of what Jayshree wanted, which was the share price going down so they could make money um, or the folks kind of involved in terms of the shorting, right? Like this is not the first time that has happened and it won't be the last. And so I think from, a company perspective, like we still, we have an amazing board of directors, and I think that should give kind of confidence. I was talking to one of our large shareholders, and like we have folks like San O'Neill, who was old CEO and chairman of Merrill Lynch on the board of historically on the board of General Motors and Alcoa, Clearway Energy. We have like Mayo Shattuck, who um, built Alex Brown, that like took all these tech companies back in the dot com bubble with the Microsofts and such public, merged that with Deutsche Bank, then ran Constellation Energy. Merged with Exxon, a $40 billion plus dollar company, is a chairman of John Hopkins uh, and is on the board of Capital One and the Gap. So we have these people with unbelievable resumes that are on our board. And if something like this came out and they didn't believe that, like 
it, 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 they, they thought that it like, it drove fear. Like they wouldn't stay, right. They would have left and said, this is like not worth hurting my reputation, et cetera. But obviously they stayed. We, and today as a company with the recent leadership changes, et cetera, like we're hyper-focused and I'm a person who likes to prove people wrong. And so we're hyper-focused on driving the business and growing it. I've told uh, folks last week when kind of the, the news first came out of the change in leadership, that I have three core focuses that's gonna drive decision-making frameworks. The first is continue to maintain a strong balance sheet going to be having so we can be buyers of interesting opportunities that are cheap. The second is focus on growth opportunities and deploying capital when we see opportunity for growth. And then the third is being relentlessly focused on driving efficiencies and increasing free cash flow. And so a lot of our decisions that we're going to make, some will be hard, some will be easier, but it's going to be focusing around those three frameworks and driving the business. Because at the end of the day, we can go and try to argue with someone that I don't think merits our attention, or we can go show the street what we got and go have the numbers prove themselves over the next couple of quarters. Yeah. Very interesting. Is is Jamie, she completely uh, not involved with the company, the old CEO of HUD8 now, or is she like take, like somewhat involved, but you know, isn't officially the CEO or is she like completely not involved? Yeah. So I, I think uh, kind of as a post-amalgamated company, we felt like it was a right time for change in, uh, in the business and the transition. So Jamie did a great job of obviously helping build the balance sheet, the hot strategy, building the brand and kind of going into this next chapter, really just focus on raw execution, investing thoughtfully into terms of growth opportunities. And so we kind of made that transition. Jamie, um, Jamie resigned from the board. The board made a decision to make a change in the CEO and leadership. And so that was the transition that happened last week and she's no longer involved on, a go on an ongoing basis. Gotcha. Um, I want to kind of talk about the locations that Hut, Hut has with all of their different sites. Cause I know you guys, like you said, you have a massive operations uh, compared to a lot of the other miners. Where are they located and why did you pick certain locations? Yeah, so uh, a mix of opportunity. And, um, and and again, this goes back to like, we'll make the right investments when the opportunity return flow is right. And so we're not location and we're location agnostic, obviously to the extent that we can diversify, that's great, right? To the extent that we can double down in areas that we love, that's great as well. And so today, we have sites in Niagara Falls in upstate New York. We have a site that we operate in Kearney, Nebraska. We have a site that we operate in Granbury, which is like an hour outside of Dallas. Uh, we have a site that we just purchased in West Texas. We have another site that we're building for the Ionic brand that's spun out of Celsius, uh, 200 plus megawatts uh, in West Texas as well. We have four sites that we took over there uh, for them. We have two facilities in Canada and Calgary. And we have five data centers, two in Vancouver, two in Toronto, and one uh, in, in Calgary and kind of in the middle uh, of Canada as well. So I have a pretty wide footprint, I would say, across North America with kind of corporate offices in Toronto and in Miami. Um, and so we have a pretty wide footprint, pretty diversified. We will continue to double down and invest in the areas that we really like and then continue to diversify um, and be a global business as well. I think also we like from a power perspective, having that diversification of power markets that we play in. So we're not at the mercy of whatever dynamics are happening in one in particular. Um, so we, yeah, we really like that also as part of our diversification piece of the business. Awesome. As the block subsidy obviously is going to trend towards zero and specifically talking about Bitcoin mining, obviously it's probably one of the reasons why you might be diversifying to other, other 
divisions. But for Bitcoin mining in particular, as the block subsidy trends towards zero, do you think the size of mining operations will like stay the same? Will they get larger? Will they get smaller and focus on like completely stranded energy? How do you see that evolving over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years? Well, I really hope uh, ordinals pick up and transaction fees really go up, right? Um, but uh, but on, on, on another note, so in regards to kind of how we think about revenue, hash price is really how we get hit, right? Like that's really the metric that matters for us. And hash price is three variables that drive it. One is Bitcoin price. The second is block rewards. And the third is difficulty. And I think difficulty is extremely interesting because when you think about where difficulty goes, whether it be up or down, there's a couple of driving factors there, right? One is new machines. And so new machines make a very big impact on difficulty because you can basically upgrade the machines on your current infrastructure and you can become potentially 30% more efficient. And so difficulty can grow by 30% just based on the whole market kind of upgrading fleets, assuming everyone's on the newest and greatest fleet, it's only a 30% efficiency increase, right? And so I think that's one route, route. The other is like new net growth. So new infrastructure being built, new facilities being built and, uh, and miners coming online. And so I, I think what is beautiful about the space is if you have kind of a directional belief that Bitcoin is not going to zero and there's going to be a value for this point, then you know that difficulty will keep folks honest and accountable, right? And so when Bitcoin prices go up, difficulty is going to go up and margins will compress because hash price will come back down. When, diff when Bitcoin prices go down, difficulty will come down over time because people can't sustain at a loss and then hash price will normalize again. And so when you really look at it, you've had massive volatility in Bitcoin price over the last, call it, five, 10 years. When you look at hash price, you've seen it kind of normal out and have some kind of some, some bottoms and some tops. And so you got to see that trend and that's that's relatively kind of more stable in the long term. Um, as you in the, the way we think about difficulty, it's like, what is the average efficiency of the whole market of people like when you look at the whole market, like for people being able to compete from a minor perspective? And then what is the average cost of energy? Because if you take your average efficiency, your average cost of energy, that gives you your margin. And if you find that equilibrium, then that's really where you have people start turning on and off as like an overall network. If you're able to beat that equilibrium, then you're able to remain profitable kind of regardless of network having or um, in block rewards or Bitcoin prices go. I think another really interesting dynamic that we haven't seen in past having cycles is now sort of the, the data around some of the additional utility of Bitcoin miners. So like we've talked about in the renewable energy space in terms of load balancing um, in the methane mitigation uh, space as well. Right now, there's two proof of concepts going up with Exxon, Mobil and ConocoPhillips in terms of rerouting methane towards Bitcoin mining operations. And then I think if you look at like in the U.S. alone, there's something like 26 gigawatts worth of solar and wind generation that's coming online in the next three to five years. Um, and the transmission lines, as Asher uh, mentioned, aren't keeping up with the, with the amount of renewable generation that's being stood up. And so there is a need for solutions like Bitcoin miners for load balancing. Um, and again, we look at ourselves or just the industry as a whole as sort of a partner in the transition to renewable energy. And that's a theme and supporting data that wasn't there in past having cycles. And so I do also think in terms of when you ask about, is everyone just going to pare down? Are they going to scale up? I think that that's another sort of nuance that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next, you know, af after the next having cycle. And one thing I want to piggyback on that real quick is I think the element of like, are you in the business of just mining Bitcoin? Or are you in the business of like maximizing electrons? Yeah. It really is interesting because if you think about back in like, I don't know, 
2014, 15, 16, 17, I don't think people were really thinking about the business as trading electricity. They were like, I need to buy miners. I need to flood them. And I need to make as much Bitcoin as I can. If you think about today, we can have a site in like Georgia, for example, and you have kind of more stable fixed energy rates, tariff markets. And the goal is like, I want to have as much uptime as possible because I have a cost of energy. I have Bitcoin and I want to make as much money as I can. Then you have places like West Texas where you can go from times where price of power is negative power, literally you're getting paid to take the power. So within 30 minutes or an hour, the price is like $3,000 a megawatt hour. And like you have that volatility. And really the like the business you're playing there is you're really trading that electricity. So you're either turning on the site when it's making money, you're shutting off the site when it's not, or you're selling a hedge or energy back into the grid when it's more... Uh, you make more money selling energy than you do mining Bitcoin, right? And so the business, I think, has evolved. And based on where the mines are located, the dynamics of how you make money really change, whether it be trading energy, participating in ancillary services, et cetera. I think that extra layer is what investors and shareholders will start really understanding. Because at the end of the day, you like I, I think how our industry has evolved, um, and I'm going to kind of talk about like, I think industrial scale mining really happened in like 2016, 17, right? And in terms of like public markets and people hearing about it and, and, and really scaling in, in the capital markets. And so I think first in like kind of 20, um, and I'll talk about this last cycle because I think it happens every time, right? Is like 20, end of 2020, 2021, Bitcoin's running. Everyone's like, wow. And it's like, oh, you can like make Bitcoin for cheaper than you can buy it if you Bitcoin mine. And so if you could go and buy these machines, which was very, very hard to do, right? No one could get their hands on it. There's a supply shortage. Then if you could buy 10,000 machines, then people would give you value and value as like, oh, wow, you bought these machines. You're going to make all this money. And then people realize, wait, you bought a lot of machines, but like, do you have a place to plug these in? Like, do you actually have power? And so towards kind of the end of 21, if you go and look at like press releases, it was like beginning of 21, everyone was talking about how many machines that they bought. End of 21, everyone was talking about how many megawatts that they found, right? Because it was like, oh, we need to have megawatts now. And then really going into kind of 2022 20, and leading to 23, the new thing is like production reports. How many Bitcoin are you mining? What is your percentage uptime? But like, is that really the business? And I, I challenge people to like really think about that. Um, and I'll use like the example of like our sites in West Texas, right? And it depends what kind of Bitcoin miner you are. So if I can mine Bitcoin, and let's just say my cost of energy um, is, is X if I have a hedge, right? Let's say I have a hedge and my cost of energy is three cents. And let's just say I can mine Bitcoin and I can make eight cents. And so you have a pretty good margin, right? You mine for eight cents, you get a Bitcoin, your cost is three cents plus your OPEX depreciation, et cetera. Okay, but what if at that moment in time, you could sell energy for 30 cents? Do you really wanna mine Bitcoin for eight cents or sell energy for 30 cents? But the problem is, if you sell energy, then your uptime is bad because you shut down the miners and you make less Bitcoin. And so when we have a production report that says, oh, we have less Bitcoin this month, or, oh, our uptime isn't as high, people are like, oh, you're really bad miners. Like, you suck. It's like, well, our numbers look way better because we made way more money doing that, right? And so I think the industry is going to evolve again. And the next chapter is going to be like, like any other business. When I go and I look at Facebook, it's like, what's the strategy or meta, I guess? What's the strategy, et cetera. But really, like, you're just looking at the numbers. Like, how much money did you make, right? How much profit did you make from that revenue? And I think people are going to really start driving towards that a lot more because if historically, these were all, like, venture-style companies where they were all growing, so they didn't have great numbers. They didn't really make profits. So people were betting on, like, where's the growth going? And I think now people are going to be a lot more accountable on profitability, 
I'm thinking about the initial CapEx depreciation because like any other business, the purpose of a company existing is to drive value, to drive free cash flow, to create value for shareholders. I mean, that's the whole essence of why a company exists. Yeah. Yeah, the Texas market is is interesting. I guess essentially you're you're capitalizing on the volatility of energy prices. How That's how right. big of the of the like Texas grid do you think Bitcoin miners could eventually become? Could it be like a very substantial part of the grid? So so Ericot has really been great about like thoughtfully regulating because you have kind of in twenty twenty one everyone saying we're gonna build all of these we're gonna build gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts and Ericot came in and said all right chill, pause for a moment. We're going to take our time. And there's this kind of whole ERCOT like large task force now that basically really looks at every new load coming online, how that affects the grid. Is it net positive or net negative? And so I think they basically paused the whole space, took a step back, and now we're taking a really methodical approach. And because of the amount of renewable generation coming online, like Sue said, renewable, the great thing about it is like, it's clean, and like your marginal cost of production is like almost nothing, right? Because it's a lot of capex up front. The sun is free, the wind is free. But the issue is the sun doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so you create intermittent generation, you create intermittent frequencies. And so with more of that coming online, if load is stable, then you have this kind of world where load is stable and you have like generation bouncing up and down, right? So now if you can create this new load like Bitcoin miners, um, and I know battery is kind of another thing that's 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 growing as well. Um, you have these new loads that come on that can also be intermittent load. Then you can help balance and as a net average, look at that kind of a lot more stable. And so I think growth will be conservative. There's kind of nice frameworks in place. There's nice protections in place. I think it'll be conservative to match the needs of kind of that market um, and to help continue to help balance it. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Last question, then we can probably go ahead and wrap it up. Looking out over the next two to three years, what are you most excited about for Bitcoin and for HUD? Okay, so why don't you go first? Yeah, I'll, I will talk um, more sort of larger addressable market. As I've talked about a little bit on this call, I am unbelievably, insanely excited for the narrative to, that we're already seeing starting to change in terms of Bitcoin miners are a partner in the transition to renewable energy, period. Um, and I'm really excited for that. Um, utility use case and really just media focus away from sort of Bitcoin miners are bad for the industry and bad for the environment. I'm really excited to see that develop and that mature. Again, as we talked about, as more renewable power comes online, as renewable operators figure out, oh shoot, if we don't have transmission lines that are scaling with the, with our projects, we need you know partners in terms of standing this up and this is where Bitcoin miners come in. So I'm insanely excited and very passionate about education around that topic. Um, so that's what I'm most excited about. Love it. Ashley, yeah. do you have anything? Yeah, I think, I think on my side, is it's going to be really interesting to see how this industry continues to evolve like it has. I think every year is like a decade in other industries, right? So continued growth, continued innovation. And for our businesses, just being heads down and executing and kind of laying out the holistic kind of strategy and vision that we have. I love it. Uh, Asher, Sue, this was great. Where can the audience go learn to find more about you guys and, and HUT? Uh, so there's HUT. Hut8.com is our website. I'm at Big Suey, B I G S U E Y on Twitter. I'm on there often. Like my DMs are open, and Asher, you are also on Twitter. I'm not as active. So, not as active. You come to me, I'll be the point guard. If you got a question for him, send it to me. I like it. Well, thanks, guys. This was awesome. Okay. Thanks, thanks so much. Appreciate the time.